So good to see you all here this morning. Wow, that's, that's extra loud. If you're joining online, I want to extend a special welcome to you as well. Thank you, uh, Melissa and Rebecca, for reading these verses. I know it's a long passage from the Gospel of John. It includes uh, the passage we'll be looking at this morning. Will you join me as I uh, commit this time of preaching to the Lord in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we have access to your word, that we have uh, the freedom to gather here this morning and open your word and, and to worship you. We thank you for your loving sacrifice for us that we remember this week, your sacrifice on the cross. And I ask uh, that your Holy Spirit will do a work among us this morning as we prepare our hearts to remember and reflect on this most holy week, that our faith in you will be strengthened and that we will be committed to obeying you and following you and worshiping you. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'd like you to imagine with me for a minute that the earthly ministry of Jesus was focused exclusively on teaching and interpreting the Old Testament law. He say he came to earth as the son of God, and his focus was to help us understand better what the Old Testament law meant and how we should follow it. Perhaps he would have added in a few miracles to to prove, in fact, he was the son of God. But imagine if the week preceding his death and resurrection. He had instead just been whisked back to heaven. That would have been a big, big problem for us, wouldn't it? We would all still be under God's wrath for our sin. There would be no hope of salvation, only certain eternal judgment. And if you've been with us, you know we've been preaching through the book of Galatians. And an important theme of that letter is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul writes, For we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 So the events of Holy Week are foundational to the Christian faith. It is the fulfillment of God's plan for redemption and the fulfillment of Jesus' purpose on earth. Without the cross and the resurrection, Paul's letter to the Galatians would make no sense. So it is fitting that we pause from our sermon series the next two Sundays and turn our attention to this spiritually significant week of human history. Our passage this morning is John 12, verses 12 to 36, that was just read for us, where John records Jesus and his arrival to Jerusalem just a few days before he would be sentenced to die on a Roman cross. The message this morning can be summarized like this. Jesus, the promised Messiah, came to fulfill God's plan of redemption. Jesus, the promised Messiah, came to fulfill God's plan of redemption. If you're listening this morning, you're familiar with this passage, you know that Jesus is the center of attention 
for everyone in this passage this morning. Everyone is concerned about Jesus. The crowds, the disciples, the Pharisees, the priests, even a group of Gentile Greeks, all interested and focused on Jesus. Now, this attention had been building for months. As Jesus traveled the region with his disciples, he would go town to town, teaching with authority, such authority that it astonished and amazed the people. We see that in Matthew 7.29, Mark 1.22, and Luke 4.32. But he wasn't just an amazing teacher. He also performed miracles and healings. So it's not surprising that the news of Jesus spread quickly and larger crowds went to see him. Of course, he didn't impress everyone. He had his opponents. Many of the Jewish leaders opposed him directly while secretly plotting to silence him. This tension between the religious leaders and Jesus grew as word of Jesus spread. And things really heated up shortly before this first Palm Sunday. If you look back at John chapter 11, you'll see that Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, had died. Jesus arrived at the tomb four days after Lazarus had been buried. And Jesus miraculously raised Lazarus back to life. This miracle created a great stir among the people and the religious leaders. Then six days before Passover, we find Jesus as the guest of honor at this dinner hosted by Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, John 12, 2. Jesus and Lazarus in the same room would be like seeing two movie stars or, or sports legends at, a, at the same restaurant. It's, it's only natural. It attracted a large crowd. We see that in verse 9. So you've got this crowd following Jesus as he makes his way towards Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But there also was a crowd of people already in Jerusalem who were eagerly looking for Jesus. We just heard that read, John eleven fifty five. Matthew's gospel records that the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred up because of Jesus. And the excitement about Jesus only angered and exasperated the Jewish leaders, John 12, 19. They were prepared to arrest him upon his arrival, John eleven fifty seven. All the excitement and the tension and the curiosity is centered and directed at Jesus. He is the center of our passage this morning, and I hope he has the center of your attention as well. I've been praying that this Palm Sunday service will direct you to Jesus this morning and prepare you for a week of reflection and worship as you remember Good Friday and celebrate Easter Sunday. And maybe I need to turn this on. Let's try this. There we go. The on button helps. That's a quick uh, tip. Okay. The message this morning, in this passage this morning, reveals three important truths about Jesus. Three important truths. You might want to write these down. 
Uh, the first is Jesus fulfilled prophecy. The second, Jesus fulfilled God's promise. And the third, Jesus fulfilled God's purpose. Let's look at our text this morning to see how Jesus fulfilled God's prophecy. Beginning in verse 12. I might need to have you come advance these slides. Thank you. Okay, so beginning in verse 12, chapter 12 of John. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, I don't know, have you ever wondered why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? I highly doubt that, that after walking throughout Judea for three years, that he didn't have enough leg strength or stamina to make it the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. But centuries earlier, the prophet Zechariah wrote this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. This prophecy was about the promised Messiah. The Hebrew word we translate as Messiah and the Greek word we translate as Christ are synonymous. They more literally mean anointed one. And there's an overarching theme of the Old Testament that God would send a Messiah, one anointed by God to bring salvation to his people. The Messiah was often described as a ruler or a king. And we know from several New Testament passages that the Jewish people were eagerly awaiting and hoping for the arrival of God's Messiah. And one of the many prophecies about the Messiah is this verse in Zechariah that describes him as a king who had arrived to Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus clearly, clearly fulfilled this specific prophecy in John 12, 14. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that really, is that that big of a deal? I mean, couldn't anyone have ridden a donkey into Jerusalem and then claimed to be the Messiah? And see, that is exactly the point. By making this deliberate choice to ride a donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus was in fact claiming to be God's promised Messiah, the King and Savior of Israel. See, there are hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus and that any ordinary person would have no control over. Where he was born, for example, his parents' lineage, many, many more. But in this case, 
Jesus deliberately chose to fulfill this prophecy. It was an announcement. He was publicly declaring that he was the promised Messiah. Up until this time, Jesus had only revealed this truth to specific individuals. John 4.26 and John 9.37, for example. And as his fame and reputation grew, the Jewish people sensed that he could be the Messiah. Some believed while others were not convinced. We see that in John 6.14, John 7.25, and John 10.24. But Jesus had never publicly identified himself as the promised Messiah until now. Jesus knew this was God's chosen moment to declare that he was the Christ, God's promised Messiah. So he purposely fulfilled this messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. The crowds offered up praises to Jesus as their Messiah King, though we don't know if they understood this specific fulfillment of prophecy. John admits in verse 16, that the disciples didn't get it until after Jesus' resurrection. So what's, uh, you know, what's so important about Jesus declaring himself as the promised Messiah? That is our second truth about Jesus this morning. He fulfilled God's promise. You see, God's promised Messiah is directly linked to God's promise of redemption that can be traced throughout scripture. The Messiah was to be more than just a righteous king. He was described as bringing salvation and redemption to God's people. We see that in Zechariah 9.9. We also see that in Isaiah 59.20, for example. These terms, salvation and redemption, are closely related, and both are fulfilled in Jesus. We probably use the word redemption a lot at the church, but perhaps not so much outside of church. A more generic definition of this word would be to pay a debt. So kids, let's say you really wanted to buy something that cost $50. And, and maybe it's a Lego set. You can advance that. Maybe it's a Lego set. Maybe it's a giant stuffed animal. But let's say you don't have $50. Now, one thing you could do would be to, to borrow $50 from, say, your brother or sister. Now, to be clear, I need to clarify, I'm not suggesting you do this. I know Dave Ramsey would not be happy with this suggestion. I, I'm just saying you could, you could do that, right? And let's just say you did borrow $50 from your brother or sister. That would create a debt, a debt to them, a debt you owe them something. In this example, you owe them $50 and you would need to repay that. But what if you couldn't repay the $50? What, what if you couldn't earn enough money? Someone could redeem that debt for you. Maybe you have a rich aunt or uncle that just happens to have a $50 in their, their wallet and they're willing to give it to your brother or sister so that that debt is paid. That would be an example of redemption. Now, when we, you can advance the slide here. When we talk about God's plan of redemption, we aren't talking about a financial debt that needs to be paid. We're talking about a debt 
that is a result of our sin. The Bible teaches that each of us have sinned and that the wages of sin is death. Paul writes this in Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. No matter how good you are, you have sinned. You have broken God's law. And that means you have a debt to pay. And that debt is death and eternal separation from God. And there's a big problem with this debt. There is no other way to pay it. You can't make up for your sin by by just doing more good deeds. The only way your debt can be paid is if someone else pays it for you. You need a redeemer. And that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He took your sin and my sin and paid the debt we owe by dying the death we deserve. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He was declaring that the debt had been paid in full. Scripture explains that the events of Holy Week were all part of God's plan. We can trace God's promise of redemption all the way back to Genesis 3.15, and we see it unfold throughout Scripture. Together, the Old Testament covenants and prophecies form a cohesive, unified promise of God's anointed Messiah who would be Savior, Redeemer, and King. The promise of redemption was fulfilled in Jesus, God's Son and promised Messiah. That is why the angels declared in Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And why Simeon could hold the baby Jesus and say, My eyes have seen your salvation, Luke 2.30. It's why after encountering the baby Jesus, Anna shared the good news with all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's why Jesus, knowing the intense torture pain and humiliation that he would soon endure could say but for this purpose I have come to this hour John 12 27 and later after his resurrection he could explain how the entire Old Testament pointed to him Luke 24 25 to 27 it's why Paul wrote that in Christ Jesus we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. Jesus had not only fulfilled God's prophecy about the Messiah, he also fulfilled God's promise of redemption. The crowd cheered, Hosanna, which meant, God, save us, and burst into messianic praise as he made his way to Jerusalem. From their perspective, the Savior had arrived, God's promised Messiah, the King of Israel. Sadly, they misunderstood the purpose of this Messiah King, which leads us to a third truth of this passage. Jesus fulfilled God's purpose. The Jewish people incorrectly thought that that God's promised Messiah would establish an earthly kingdom. Jerusalem would be his capital city, where he would rule the world with peace and righteousness. 
The people cried Hosanna because they wanted Jesus to save them from Roman oppression. And who better to lead them than someone who could perform miracles? Verse 18 tells us the crowd went out to meet Jesus because they had heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. Now this wasn't the first time a crowd of people got so excited about Jesus they wanted to make him king. Back in John chapter 6, after the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with only two fish and five loaves of bread, John writes that Jesus had to withdraw from the crowd because they wanted to take him by force and make him king, John 6.15. The Jewish people were looking for a political savior to conquer a political enemy of Israel. But his God-given purpose was not political. Jesus was a spiritual savior who would conquer a spiritual enemy of all people. Now, it's hard to blame the crowds for their lack of understanding. We have the luxury, right, of of having the New Testament, of having this all explained to us, which is probably why on three separate occasions, Jesus took his disciples aside and warned them what would happen when they arrived in Jerusalem. Luke records the third warning like this, and taking the twelve, He said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Luke 18, 31 to 33. There is no question that Jesus understood and fulfilled his God-given purpose. He was the promised Messiah of whom all the Old Testament prophets spoke. And he would redeem his people, not the nation of Israel, but all who believe in him. To do so meant he must suffer and die. That was the only way he could redeem sinful men and women. He had to pay the debt of our sin He spoke to this twice in our passage this morning. The first is in response to a group of Gentile Greeks who were in Jerusalem for Passover. It's an interesting detail. We don't have time to develop this morning. But it is reflective that the Messiah was not just for the Jews, but for the entire world. This group asked to meet Jesus. Rather than record if Jesus actually met with them, John only records the teaching response Jesus gave regarding his true purpose as Messiah. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour Jesus spoke of was what we now refer to as Holy Week, his final hours with his disciples, his arrest and trial, his flogging, his death by crucifixion, and his victorious defeat of death by rising again. All of it perfectly and lovingly planned by God 
to save us from our sin. Jesus emphasized his purpose by saying, truly, truly. It's a double emphasis that what he is about to say is absolutely true and certain. He then used an illustration to describe his ultimate purpose. Picture a seed that must be buried in the ground in order to create new life and flourishing fruit. The illustration doesn't need much explanation, does it? We know what to do with a seed. We literally bury it. And from that seed comes new life. And in case you're not tracking, Jesus is the seed. We gain new life because he willingly died for us. Now his willingness to die did not mean it was easy. Verse 27 gives us a glimpse into the human side of Jesus. Troubled by the pain and humiliation and abandonment he would soon face. It's not the only time his soul was troubled. John 13, 21 reveals his troubled spirit as he explained his betrayal to the disciples. And we know in Luke 22, the agony he felt as he prayed for strength to complete his purpose on earth. Yet Jesus never wavered. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name, verse 27. Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. On the contrary, he was orchestrating every aspect of the unfolding events in accordance with God's will. He then turned his attention back to the crowd, again speaking to his purpose. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John adds that Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So in verses 23 to 24, Jesus explained that he must die to bear fruit. In verse 32, he revealed that his death would result from being lifted up, a clear reference to hanging on a Roman cross until he would die. Jesus fulfilled God's prophecy, God's promise, and God's purpose. He was the promised Messiah to which all of Scripture points. But his purpose was not political. It was spiritual. He was not sent to rescue the Jewish people from Rome, but to rescue all people from their own sin. I'd like to close this morning by considering how to respond to these truths about Jesus. The most important response is to believe. That was the response Jesus sought from the crowd in verses 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We know Jesus was describing himself as the light because a few verses later, Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light 
so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Verses 44 to 46. Jesus is calling you to believe in him. Now, I don't know where you are at spiritually this morning. There might be someone here with doubts. Maybe you doubt that God really loves you or cares about you. Maybe you doubt that you can trust God's word. Maybe you doubt that God could really forgive some of your sins in the past. The people in our passage this morning had doubts. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man, they asked. That is a good question, isn't it? One that each one of us must answer. Do you remember when Jesus asked his disciples what what other people were saying about him? They said some people believed he was John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's that same question that we each must answer. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. Peter believed. At the end of John's gospel, he writes this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name, John 20, 30 to 31. We'll never know everything there is to know about God. But through God's word, he has revealed enough for us to believe. And by believing, we have life in his name. This is Palm Sunday, the the beginning of Holy Week. It would be a perfect day for you to put your full trust and belief in Jesus Christ as your Savior, Redeemer, and King, to confess that your sins create a debt that you can never repay and believe that Jesus paid it all for you. That is a promise of God you can count on. If that's you this morning, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service. You can reach out to any one of the pastors this week. Talk with a parent. Now, I know most of us here this morning do believe. We call ourselves believers. This passage reminds us that Christians are called to follow him, to follow Jesus, and that requires self-sacrifice, verse 26. In fact, Jesus essentially says in verse 26 that following him means we stop serving ourselves and we start serving him. This ought to be a natural response when we believe him. I've heard it said that God's love language is obedience. Serving God and following Jesus means we obey his word. This means we accept our circumstances as God's will and look for ways to serve him in our circumstances rather than being resentful or complaining about our circumstances. This means we love others, even those people who make it hard to love, even if they respond to us in ways 
that make it hard to love. It means we restrain spending all of our time and money on things that bring us comfort so that we can faithfully return a portion to the Lord's work and ministry. It means we block unwholesome images from our phones and computers. It means we are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It means we strive for unity and peace in our families and in our church. It means we seek to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It means we read God's word so we know how to obey him. It means we pray for the Holy Spirit to help us grow in spiritual maturity and resist sinful temptation. And finally, I would, I would be remiss if worship wasn't a response to our passage this morning. It's Palm Sunday after all. We just had our kids lead us in waving palm branches and, and singing worship songs. You see, the crowd's misunderstanding of the Messiah's purpose and their fickle belief in Jesus in no way diminishes the worthy praise they showered upon him. In fact, in Luke 19.40, Jesus said that if the people had not sung their praises, the stones would have cried out. He is indeed king. Jesus is the king of kings, 1 Timothy 6.15. He is the promised Messiah. He is our savior and redeemer. He alone is worthy of our praise and worship. So worship him this morning and this week. Will you join me as I close in prayer? Lord Jesus, we do worship you. We worship you because you died for us, because you paid the debt of our sin that we could never repay to restore a right relationship with you. We worship you because you did that out of your love for us. We thank you. We praise you. And I ask, Lord, that we will respond to you obediently, faithfully, and worshipfully. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.